Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? into a very short mini series, three episodes where I pulled teachers from a couple different districts and schools and just asked them to send me some questions they wanted to have answered about stress, trauma, behavior, the brain, all that good stuff. So the next three episodes, I am going to go through five to eight questions, depending on how long they take to answer and just spend the episode answering your questions. So let's jump in. Question number one, how do you deescalate a child who is losing composure? Well, I would say the first thing you need to do is calm yourself. When a child's energy goes up, it's really easy for us to go into like a more tense and tight and elevated state ourselves. We we naturally model mimic uh, the people around us or the things that are going on around us, especially for deeply empathetic beings. So the first thing to do, and this is like how I cue myself in the moment, I take my hand and the palm of my hand and I put the palm on my forehead. And by putting the palm on my forehead, it reminds me to stay in my thinking brain, or if I'm already elevated emotionally to go back into my thinking brain. So when you stay and remain calm, when kids are losing their composure, they are more likely to catch your calm. The other thing I might do is model for them what they can do, depending on how escalated or elevated they are. I may prompt them or cue them to do what I'm doing. I won't ask them to do it and I won't tell them to do it because when a child's getting elevated or is elevated, asking them questions and making them think doesn't work. And putting a demand on them takes away their power and control when their body already feels out of control. So that doesn't work either. So I might model some things I would like them to do to calm down, deep breathing, taking a walk, taking a break, whatever it may be. And maybe I will say you could, or we can, you know, take a walk, you know, whatever it is, Um, suggest things that we could do, or they might be able to do, but not tell them to do it and not ask them if they want to do it. Because at this point they're losing access to their logical, rational brain and they've fallen into their emotional kind of survival brain. So anything that takes communication, choices, question, response, those things don't work. Just kids are already too elevated. So catch the call, model what you want them to see. All right. How do we reduce stress, trauma, 
and negative behavior triggers. Oh, I'm going to give you the chills. Um, we can read, so this is almost like a three part question in one. How do we reduce stress? That's one thing. How do we reduce trauma? That's one thing. How do we reduce negative behavior triggers? Another thing. So let me kind of go into each one briefly. How do we reduce stress? The best way to do this is to cultivate a positive environment in your classroom. If you have an environment that's warm and loving and empathetic and compassionate, I mean, you can feel it. You can feel when you walk into a teacher's classroom, what kind of energy is, is going on in there. And if we can learn to cultivate happy, um, warm, loving, friendly places that reduces stress alone. How else can we reduce stress? We can take periodic checks, whether we're visually scanning or we're actually asking kids to give us feedback about their current emotional levels. And if the emotional levels are high or for some they're high, they can take a break or the whole class can take a break and you do something to bring the stress response back down. And then just being aware of what causes kids stress at each age group and how to not add to that stress by putting them in situations where those things are activated. So I would say definitely check the culture classroom, know the stressors for your students and do stress check-ins or emotional temperature check-ins. How do we reduce trauma? I mean, some of the traumatic events we don't have control over, uh, abuse in the home, uh, language in the home, community. We can't change those things. We can help educate families and people and communities about things are considered traumatic and stressful and chronically stressful, but we can't control those things. So focus on what you instead can control. So reduce the, this trauma in your own classroom because there is a lot of trauma in schools. A lot of people kind of forget that emotional abuse is a still a form of abuse. And it's one I see quite regularly in the educational setting. So having expectations that are unrealistic for students, um, using humor in a negative way where kids feel kind of targeted or embarrassed. You know, when these things happen day in and day out over and over and over again, it is emotional abuse and it can be really traumatic. So making sure that we aren't doing things in our own classroom that are harmful and hurtful to kids. And how do we know that? We, we learn about what those things are. We self-educate or we hopefully are in a district that educates us. So just exploring there a little bit and making sure that we're doing the best we can and we're not perfect. We're going to, we're going to screw it up, but have grace for yourself and know that you can apologize and you can start over again the next day. How do we reduce negative behavior triggers? I'm not, I don't love triggers. I don't love working with triggers because triggers to me means we are responding to the behavior and I don't want us to respond to the behavior. I want us to understand what's under the behavior because you can change triggers, but if you don't get to the root of what's happening and why that behavior is displaying, it's just going to manifest itself in another way, another place, another time, another day. So for me, triggers are ish, helpful-ish uh, to know because we might be able to manipulate some of the situations or environments or something to change and remove those triggers. But if we don't get to the root cause, then we don't really fix the problem. So focus more on what's causing the behavior. What's the child trying to get met? What need do they have that isn't getting met? And why are they using this behavior to get that need met? So just a real quick example for you. 
Let's say a child's acting out a lot in class or trying to seek attention. A lot of people will say, well, you should just ignore that. Not necessarily. That's a sign from a child that they are trying to build a relationship. It's in a very negative and appropriate way. But to me, it's screaming attention. When a child's screaming attention, I say, oh, okay. They need some extra attention. Do I give it to them in this moment? No. But do I take a mental note or maybe a physical note that they need more time and attention from me in the future? Yeah. And do I give it to them before they start showing the the behaviors? Yes. I give them attention before they start seeking the behavior. Because just ignoring their inappropriate use of behavior to get a need met, well, that need's not going to go away until it's met. So by just ignoring it, I'm really kind of almost deepening the psychological scars that the child's displaying to me or showing me. But there are always lots of things around that. Age is a big factor there, emotional maturity, things like that. So at times, planned ignoring can be a useful strategy. Just, yeah, I have to know the situation. How does technology use affect stress? It's so interesting because we have a nine-month-old, almost nine-month-old. And I've asked caretakers to not do phones, technology, TV, movies, shows, anything like that yet. He's going to be exposed to it at some point. Sure. Does he need to be exposed to it at eight, nine months old? Absolutely not. And I've had some pushback from family about this Uh, because kids like it. They enjoy it. And, And they do because they're addicted to it because their brains aren't mature enough to be able to handle the sensory overload, to be honest. Um, there's a, a show that's really popular called Coco Melon. And if you're a parent who uses or watches Coco Melon with your kiddos, I hate to burst your bubble. It's so bad for kids. Why? There was a study done on it and it has the same addictive qualities as cocaine, heroin. I can't remember which one, maybe both. Um, and they show why that is because the the bright flashy colors and because the scenes move so fast. So they compared Coco Melon to like a Mr. Rogers and the scenes will move like once every 10 seconds in Mr. Rogers. The scenes move every one to three seconds in Coco Melon. So it's just new scene, new scene, new scene. And, it, and it's all these little like changes that we see on screen are dopamine hits to the brain and it keeps kids wanting to watch. They can't look away because they're going to miss something. So, I mean, as simple as a, a show, that young kids love can cause addictive tendencies, can cause um, exhaustion when their brain is working so fast to keep up with the rapid changes. They lose the ability to emotionally regulate because they become so exhausted and cause behavior problems. And that's just one example. That's just a TV show for kids. I imagine there's all kinds of layers of that to kids of different ages, different TV shows. What are they watching? I mean, there's a lot of research behind watching violent shows or playing violent games and being a more violent individual. Does that mean every person that watches something violent is going to become violent? Absolutely not. But are you more wired to be violent? Yeah. Because your neural pathways start to form based on what's around you, based on the environments you put yourself in. So if you watch a lot of violent TV shows or you play a lot of video games that are violent, your your brain and your neural pathways are wiring in that direction. So technology has a massive impact on our stress levels and our ability to regulate our emotions and our ability to 
um, handle like fatigue, like mental fatigue. And that's not to say that technology is bad and that kids should never be exposed to technology and we should never use it because it's got some amazing things. It's just, I think we overly depend on it and overly use it. And we need to be really mindful of that and the effects of it. And it's easy to, you know, kids love those things and they keep them occupied and it gives us some free time and frees up our sanity. So it's okay to use every now and then. It's not, um, just not something we want to use every day and not something that we want to use maybe so regularly. And that's all I'm going to say about technology. Okay. How can we, how long can it take to reprogram the brain after major stress and traumatic events like our pandemic? This is kind of a hard one to answer and hard, but not hard, hard that in there isn't a specified amount of time. And, and why is that? Because everyone's brain is different. Everyone's brain has different neural pathways that wire in different directions. And some people can manage more and some can manage less. And everyone's had a different upbringing and everyone has a different genetic background. So there's so many factors that go into reprogramming a brain. And although they could all be reprogrammed, what takes one child three days may take another child 13. It may take another child 33 days. So there are just a lot of factors that go into that. So I would say we we don't have an answer to that, or we don't have like a great answer to that. I know when it comes to habit talking or yeah, habit talking or talking about habits, they say around 66 days of doing something consistently and regularly that you've got it pretty well programmed in your brain. So you could take that and maybe apply it to somewhat of a traumatic or stressful event. Like if you have a pattern that you've developed from a stressful or traumatic event and you're aware of that pattern and you're doing something to correct that pattern and you do it regularly for 66 days, it's likely that your pattern may not be fixed, but it's much closer to being fixed or it feels a lot better or you've made significant progress on it by at least, you know, 30 to 60 days. So I would say loosely, two months. That means when you're working on new behaviors with kiddos, they are going to take some time to learn the new skill. And it, it, you know, I have some teachers and parents that say like, ah, it didn't work. How long to try it? One time, five times, one week, two weeks, not like not long enough. Got to try it for two months. If it doesn't work after two months, eh, then maybe we can try something else. But can't give up on things so quickly. And note too, like with behaviors for, they, they say loosely, for the amount of time that a child's been doing something, that's about how many months it takes for it to go away, like the reversal work to do. So let's say a child's biting and they've been biting for six months. Um, sorry, that's not, that's not a good example. Let's go back and try it again. Um, hitting. Let's say they've been hitting for a while. Um, so it's a behavior that you really maybe have been seeing on and off for like two years. Then we're talking like a two plus month period of like kind of intensive non-hit work to get them to be able to stop themselves from hitting and using that impulsive response. And that's, that's a loose and light role. 
um, 66, 60 ish day mark is probably a better rule to go with. So again, it's different for everyone. What are the best practices or strategies to help students who have experienced trauma? Another hard one in that what works for one person will not work for another. I don't believe that there's one modality that works for everybody. I don't think it exists. So even when I created the behavior hub and I created a, a framework to use to coach schools and families, the framework I have is so loose. It's not, uh, it's not something that would easily be put into like a book or a curriculum because it's different for each person. And what I've done is take different modalities and mash them together and kind of pull from each area when I feel like I need it. So I think it's the same for kids who've experienced trauma. I don't know that there necessarily are best practices. I mean, best practices would be to not do things that further uh, exacerbate the problem or to deepen psychological scars. So there are some things that we can do to kind of solicit. That's the word I want. Healing. Um, Illicit healing. (laughs) What's the word? It's late. I can't think of the words I want. Um, But there are things that we can do in our classroom to make the environment more safe, to make it more comfortable for to help kids be able to open up. And that doesn't even have to be just all social emotional work. That can be reading and writing work. They can read books that help them learn some of these skills. They can write and get some of these thoughts out of their heads and out of their hearts and onto paper and seem to be writing and drawing. So I think when we talk about best practices or strategies for students who've experienced trauma, start with building a relationship. The number one thing that's going to help kids heal from any form of trauma is feeling like they have a safe individual they can go to in the school or a safe room or a safe place or a safe culture. Um, And when they feel safe, even if they don't open up, the healing begins. Are young people likely more stressed by the pandemic than adults? Hmm. Interesting question. I think adults are so compounded by stress. I think there's so much compounded stress that the pandemic just feels like something that's tipping our buckets. Whereas I do feel like kids are not, they don't have the skill set to manage the stress of the pandemic, but adults have more stress. So it's tipping them over the edge more so than kids. So hmm, a tricky question to answer because I do feel like adults have brains and so do kids, but brains that are more developed because they are older, they're more mature. So they should be able to handle more stress. And because kids are not always completely aware of what's going on around them because their brains aren't developed enough to do that, they may not know all the details. So I would argue that adults are probably more stressed by the pandemic than kids, but it certainly has an effect on kids. And even if kids don't feel the stress themselves, they feel their parents' stress and naturally they take on some of that stress, if not a lot of it. So they are equally impacted, but maybe not equally stressed. (laughs) And that is not based on data. That is based on my own human thoughts. (laughs) 
all right, makes logical sense in my mind. Is it better to teach in a way that assumes all children have experienced trauma? I actually really love this question. I don't know who asked this, but you're an awesome human. I think yes, because to me, trauma practices are grounded in relationship work. And I think we are, I don't think, I know, I see it. There's research around it. We are community today in present society who is disconnected from each other, from our tribes, from family, from the human race in general. So I think that when we think about trauma, uh, teaching kids that we know have trauma and how, kind of how to teach, the the basis of that is is build a good culture and a good relationship in your classroom. And I think that that needs to be done no matter the amount of trauma, the level of trauma, or how many kids have experienced trauma. SEL, if those of you who aren't familiar, social emotional literacy, social emotional learning, depends on who you are and where you are. I truly believe it's something that needs to be set up before kids can do anything else in a school. If kids don't know how to stay emotionally neutral and get to emotional neutrality, they don't have the basic skill set they need to stay in logic. And if you can't stay in your logical, rational brain, you can't learn, or you can potentially pick up some information, but it's not going to stay in your memory system. So these skills need to be taught because this is not something that we are born with. Learning to regulate is something we learn by watching others. It's something we learn by practicing. Our brains just aren't created to do that on their own. So I would argue, yes, that it is better to teach in a way that assumes all children have experienced trauma. And the numbers for the amount of kids that have experienced trauma are quite high. So kids that haven't experienced trauma aren't going to be hurt by that type of approach. And the last one is learning to cope with stress as good as eliminating stress. Well, I would say that we probably can't really eliminate stress and we don't want to because stress isn't all bad. Stress gets a bad rap. It's not all bad. There is stress that is designed, you know, all all our body systems are, are created to save us, to help the human race continue on. So it's there for a reason. We just unfortunately have maybe abused it a little too much. Um, the stress report, the stress, stress response saves you when there are, are dangerous animals around you, or you're getting close to doing something that would be not so smart, like getting too close to the edge of a cliff. <laughs> um, and even in schools, a little bit of stress, a little bit, sometimes we have too much, often we have too much, a little bit of stress and challenge is good. It helps us to grow. It helps us to gain resiliency, to get stronger and faster and better. So it can be good, but there's what we call kind of like tolerable stress, which that would fall into. And then there's toxic stress. And I'm not, toxic stress is never going to go away. Some people have less of it in their lives, but it's always there in some way. And when that toxic stress is chronic, then it becomes a real issue and does some serious damage. So I would focus less on eliminating stress because that's pretty hard to do. You can work on eliminating some things that are stressful to you, but there are always going to be stressful things in life. So at the same time, I really think that learning to cope with stress is something we all need to do and learn how to do well. There's a lot of demand for many things here in Western society in the United States. So stress is, stress isn't going away. 
So definitely learn and teach your kids how to cope with stress. To wrap up the show, I'm going to share with you a tried home tip, which is art. And I say art in that do something that is going to get your hands dirty, paint, sculpt, create some type of figure out of materials, something that gets you away from your phone, gets you looking at things and touching things and manipulating things. It's a very mindful practice. So art of some form. That's it for today's episode of Returning to Us. Remember, I tried a home tip, which is art in some form. Painting could be fun, but so good sculpting. If you are looking for more support in the area of stress, trauma, and behavior, or the brain, I would love to be a part of that learning journey. The Behavior Hub, the organization I created, offers a range of supports from coaching to online courses to workshops, even university credit for the courses we have. So if you want to learn more, shoot me an email or a text through the contact on the website. And uh, don't forget to lock in what you learn by sharing some of these things with other people around you or commenting below what your biggest takeaway was. Until next Until next episode, I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, and thanks for joining me.